I am side project interested in writing. I know Becky is too. She's more than side project though because I have about three minutes to spare every week that I like to dedicate to writing. Um, and I follow a couple of writing groups and there's a challenge amongst writers to write stories in six words. You heard, you heard of this challenge, Beck? Yep. Parky's nodding his head. Anyone else heard of it? Write a, write a story in six words. It evokes some sort of emotion. Something in six words. Like, um, I am really terrible at this. No, that was not my attempt. Neither were those last six words. <laughs> You know, like I'm, I'm really bad at, at being able to boil things down to small, concise sentences. Like, hence me just probably barbing on right now. It's, it, it, takes a, it takes a while for me to know which words I need to get rid of. Um, and I've always been amazed. So the six-letter story challenge has always... Sorry, six-word story challenge has always amazed me. And here's some examples of someone who's tried to tell a funny story in six words. Ready? I am beside myself. Cloning machine works. It's <laughs> pretty good, hey? Well, what about Sandcastle for sale, limited time offer? <laughs> Jeez, you're a tough crowd, too, hey? Or sad stories. And uh, for sale, baby's clothes, never worn. Or, sorry soldier, boots sold in pairs. You can get a lot out of six words, hey? Why am I telling you this? Why, why did we start this? Well, Jesus was so, so, so brilliant that he told really short stories, really short stories, and explained so much, so much in them. This verse that we're going to look at today, once again, we're going to continue in the parables uh, of Matthew 13. Um, this verse we're going to look at today is like only like 30-ish or something words, all right? But it maps out so much. It's like this tiny little story, but when you fit it over the biblical arc, it just maps perfectly, contours fit, everything just makes so much sense. And this is just brilliant, brilliant wordage from Jesus. So, as I said, like, the last few weeks, it's no, su no surprise, really. I've just wanted to continue in this because this is Matthew 13. It's where I've been fascinated for the last little while. A lot of my previous sermons have come from this as well. So today we're going to be looking at this um, uh, just little tiny story about a treasure hunter, really. Someone walking around a field, finds something valuable in it. And I just want us to press into this... Um, and as, as just as we, as we try and learn what this kingdom of God is, this here, the kingdom of God's here, Jesus says it was here back when he was here on earth, but, but it's still not yet. It's not, in its, not here in its fullness yet. So, and I just want us to investigate this as we live our lives in our street, in our workplaces and community groups and whatever else, okay? So we've come back in from out of the world and we're in this perfect little half-circle Sunday. So I want us to rethink the theology of this... Um, this parable 
And then we're going to use, we're going to look at its pair, so the following little parable next week in our, in our reworking. So that's where our rethinking and our reworking is going to come from. So this might be a little bit heavier sermon. Next week will be a little bit more workier, practical uh, applicationer <laughs> sermon. So we're good with that. Let's read Matthew 13, chapter, sorry, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now, as I said, like I know that this little verse is sort of paired up with the verses that come after it, like the following parable about this really incredibly valuable pearl. Um, but we're going to leave it, we're just going to look at this one today because I just want to, I sort of want to break the two apart and, and discover the two halves of it because I don't know how you when, you, when you read this passage before, I don't know how you think of it, whether you think of it, Jesus is just reiterating what he's saying. Does he say two parables that are, they're very similar, like just as how the flow of them, like this man gets rid of everything to purchase this one thing. That's basically the gist of both of them. They're so super similar. But I don't know how you think of it, whether you think of it like, is Jesus just reiterating himself? Or is he talking about two separate entities, but how they're related to is exactly the same? So anyway, more on that next week. We won't go into too much of that now. Um, so as I said, like today, this week, I pretty much want us to do a bit of digging. No pun intended for a treasure hunting sermon. <laughs> But to do it, dig up a bit of stuff and leave it lying around on the surface so that next week we can come in and we go, oh yeah, we'll grab that and that and that and we can run with it and we can understand it a bit better. Yeah. So we can understand it next week um, a bit better. So all good. We're happy with that. So what's people's understandings of this parable previously for today? So when I talk to people, and um, this is a bit of a disclaimer, this is the way I used to think of it. I used to interpret this parable like, okay, we're in this field, which is this life. We're walking around. We discover Jesus and we, we, we hide him deep within us and we get rid of all of our stuff that sort of gets in the way of following Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And that's, that's exactly how I used to look at this as well until I started looking at it a little bit closer. Okay? Um, because... When, when, I, when I start thinking about that and when I look at this interpretation, I see that there's some truth in it, like, you know, getting rid of everything to pursue Jesus, like ditching all your earthly stuff to follow Jesus. I get that there's that. That's a good element because, remember, Jesus told that rich, young, high-flying, uh, you know, maybe executive manager, ruler guy, he said, you know, what must I do? You know, I'm, I'm going to follow you. And Jesus said, no, sell your stuff and follow me. And he couldn't do it because he had a whole lot of stuff. It was too painful for him. So that idea of getting rid of stuff to follow Jesus is good. But how, how do we feel about the idea of being able to sell your stuff and buy the field that the kingdom of God's in? Does that sound a bit strange? And how do we, like, and if we were then to have, you know, Jesus' eternal life, if we were then to have obtained that somehow and then we covered it up again, what does that look like? How do we consolidate that? Because if we cover it up, doesn't that make us kind of like the, the, that parable, you know, of that, that servant that, yeah, took the talent and buried it and didn't do anything with it? 
seem to sound a bit like that. So this is the problems that I was having with this as, as I was looking through it. So if you've got that understanding of it, that's okay. Let's just put it on the shelf and let's consider something new today, okay? So Jesus begins. Let's have a look. Jesus begins by saying, now notice, I think it's important to notice here that he's come away from the crowds, he's come into the house and he's speaking here with his disciples. And he's saying the kingdom of, he says the kingdom is like, Treasure hidden in a field. Treasure hidden in a field. Got that picture in our minds? So, what's the field? What do we know the field's been from the previous parables? Jesus has made a big point about talking about the field as the world. Exactly, Noel. <laughs> These ones from the back row. Exactly, Jesus made a great point. Pointing this out, the field is the world. Okay. So the field's the world, and there's treasure in the world. Yeah? Okay. We understand that. There's obviously treasure in the world. And a man finds something in this field. The man stumbles on this treasure, or he finds this treasure, and it is of incredible value to him. But then he covers it up again. is so strange. See, uh, like when I think of this, I'm like, if I found treasure in a field, what would you, what would you do, Becky, if you found treasure in a field? Be honest. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's what I'm thinking. I'm like, well... Uh... <laughs> yeah. Yes? If, if the field's the world, how do you buy it? Exactly, Tim. Exactly. <laughs> And you're just busting through my points, man. We'll no, get to no, that. No, no, no. <laughs> like, I got it. And I went back and I'm like, yep, it's the field. And I'm like, hang on, he's just bought it. Like, yeah. What's that? Yeah. And that's what, I'm, that's what I was looking at when, when, I, when I was finding this. Like, he's, he finds his treasure in it. So he's got the world and he finds his treasure in it. And he, he doesn't steal it. He, he then does this really honourable thing and goes and buys the field. Now, this is honourable because, so we'll just do a bit of a, history lesson on the context here. So before there were trusted institutions like banks and things where we could store our wealth, we know I'm using air quotes for the, I'm using air quotes for you listening, um, you know, because we don't trust banks, but it's where we put our valuables still anyway, isn't it? Okay. Or in, you know, unnumbered boxes in some Swiss bank account somewhere if you're, if you're super wealthy. But before there were banks, um, People used to bury their wealth in the field, in a hidden place where only they would know where it was. Because legally, like in the customs of the day, legally whatever was on the surface, like whatever was in the ground of your plot of land was yours. Okay, so you could um, go and hide your, all right, there's a tree over there, uh, 10 steps away from the tree, I'm going to you know, bury my life savings here. And so people would do that. So if someone broke into their house, then they couldn't be robbed from that. So whatever was in the land was owned by the <laughs> landowner. So that's why this man looks honourable when he's buying the field and what's in it. So this man, this man, then enjoy, that's a clue, that's a bit of a key word, enjoy, he goes and sells everything that he has 
to buy this field. Now, crazy, just the writers in the group will know this, that we're often told when we're writing stories to show, don't tell, okay? I'm not going to tell that someone's nervous, I'm going to show they're nervous. I'm going to make them chew their fingernails and hunch over a little bit. It, it's way more engaging, draws the people in, okay? And you can actually understand that that person really is nervous. Jesus has done exactly the same things here because as we just worked out in the start, Jesus is an amazing wordsmith, okay? Jesus has shown that this man in, incredibly values whatever is in the field by showing what he does to get it, all right? Jesus has gone, this, sorry, this man... <laughs> this, um, this man from this parable has thrown everything in. He's gone all in to buy this field. Like, think about in the movie terms, like if there's a game of poker on, like he's slid all his chips in, he's thrown his house keys in there, he's thrown his Lamborghini keys in there, like completely in, completely in. It's almost reckless as to how this looks. Okay, completely in no thought of saving some money for a rainy day, no thought of worrying about what the property market's doing, whether it's troughing or peaking or overcapitalization, none of that sort of stuff. There's no thought of that. Okay, he's, this man that's buying this, he's all in. He sold every single thing he has to get this. What could be so valuable? Now, circle back, all right? So we, we know the field's the world. Tim's all over it. We know the fields of the world. It contains something of incredible worth to this man. So who is this man that's then gone all in, slid everything in on buying this field, everything? Who's this man? So at this point in time, we might be inclined to throw out a Sunday school answer and say, Jesus? Maybe? Questioning? Jesus? All right, so let's do the whole algebra thing and substitute him back into the equation and see if it makes sense. So let's get, it, let's get ready to jump around a bit, all right? Jump up, jump up and get down. Jump, <laughs> jump, jump, jump. Back to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, right back to the beginning. So God's created the world, everything's good, okay? Um, he creates humans, and as he says in verse, uh, where is it, verse 26, when God's saying, all right, let's make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the livestock, over all the earth, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. All right, so God's created everything, then he's given it to man. Dominion, you have it. Power, influence over this world. Okay, you have it. But then we know how the story goes. Enter this adversary, enter this thing called the... Satan into the world and convinces man to disobey God and in doing so obey him and then through the, the I suppose the law of like master and slave then everything that then was man sort of becomes his so it's influence over man's influence and dominion over the the world is then forfeited to this adversary, this problem, this enemy, this Satan. Okay? So in becoming the enemies of this Satan, sorry, becoming slaves of this enemy, man's forfeited over their dominion over the world 
to, to this Satan being. So God has it. God gave it to man. Man's offloaded it to Satan. Let's go uh, a little bit further. So God in his cosmic redemption plan, okay, he wants to bring everything back to himself. He gives his only one, like one only precious son, yeah? Now jump forward. This son, Jesus, is on earth. Let's jump into... Actually, no, don't worry about it. We'll just paraphrase. Um, after Jesus is baptised and the Spirit leads him out into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. And what happens? Who shows up? Exactly. This same enemy, the same adversary, shows up. They have a few exchanges. But at one point there, this, this adversary, this Satan, goes to Jesus and he says, hey, brings him away. He says, look at these kingdoms. This, this is all mine. Do you want it? Bow down to me. Does Jesus say, hey, man, no, it's not yours? Does he, does he dispute that? He doesn't. Because Jesus knows that Satan's got the influence over it. Satan's just here trying to shortcut Jesus' plan here through getting worship himself. Like, if he can get Jesus to worship him, then, you know, we've won. Okay? So he's trying to shortcut Jesus' plan. He's, so Jesus has got this long game. It's like a plan. It involves mess. It involves pain. It involves blood. It involves a cruel death. Like, he sees that before him. Or we can, we can just shortcut it here. But no, Jesus holds strong and he resists the devil and the devil flees from him, as James says. So, we can get a little bit of a picture now. Get a little bit of a picture of who this man is. If we substitute in God the Father is this man, who's the, who's the, what, 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 does he, what does he pay to buy this field? His son, exactly. And similarly in the Trinity, who is God the Son, Jesus, what does he give up? He goes through this massive, painful death and everything, doesn't he? As, as it says in Hebrews, and I think, Parker, you alluded to it this morning as well. You know, for, in Hebrews it says, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despised the shame, and then happy ending, you know, he's now seated at the right hand of God the Father. But the, for the joy set before him, from our parable, what does it say? In joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. So, so we see that this, this whole power of, of, of the, the whole power over the whole world, over sin, death, etc., it's bought away from Satan by God through the death of his son, through giving up everything he has, like all in on this field, buying the world, okay? All in, giving up himself. And he's dying so that he can have it as his again. Now, on to the tricky part. What's the treasure? Now, this is going to probably disconnect us a little bit, but we're going to get reconnected next week. Okay, this is the treasure bit. Treasure, what's the treasure? And this is going to be a little bit back and forthy. And this took me a little bit of a while, like a long time to sort of work out. So if, um, if you want to talk about this later, like, let's, let's absolutely, like, let's workshop it out. Um, it's a bit foreshadowy here, and we'll sift through God's master plan as we go, and we're going to leave it, as I said, open-ended, to be continued next week. Firstly, this treasure, okay? Now, I think that the, the treasure here in this treasure, so, you know, we, we looked at this, so we're looking at the treasure in the field. Next week, we're going to look at this, like, pearl um, of, of great price, so we just 
distancing ourselves from that a little bit at the moment. We're just looking at this treasure here. In this treasure parable, I think the overall biblical narrative points this treasure to be the nation of Israel. I think. The meta ark. When you look at the meta ark over the Bible, it looks to be Israel. So let's have a look at it. Um, I'll show you how I think this. Um, remember, one of my favorite um, chapters in the Bible, and we, I've, I think I've talked from this in the past, is like Exodus chapter 19. Does anyone know what's going on in Exodus 19? Given that the Ten Commandments were given in Exodus 20, what's going on in 19? The what? Yeah, but before that, like, yeah, 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 I love. The children of Israel are camped at the base of Mount Sinai, and this mountain is just like quaking, shaking, carrying on, rocks bursting into flames, thick smoke, everything. It's just a mountain is about to rip itself apart because its creator has come down and is there at the top of it. Okay, and God calls out of the mountain, calls Moses up to come and meet me at the top. Could you imagine climbing a mountain that's about to rip itself apart because God's standing at the top, sitting on top of it? You know, we're talking about that this morning. Like Adrian's like, you know, what? Imagine if you saw God face to face. Like, imagine if you hear Him, but you, you think it's just a little bit of God's power there is in that mountain, just on the verge. It's amazingly powerful anyway. I love that chapter of Exodus 19. But let's read it because we're trying to actually understand that Israel is a treasure. So let's not get sidetracked and let's read Exodus um, chapter 19. We'll read in verse 3. Um, While Moses went up to God, so the Lord called to him out of the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, here's the money, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a, a holy nation. What's holy mean again? Set apart, exactly, separated out. You shall be to me a holy nation. And these are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So here God's calling Israel his treasure among all the people on the earth. So the earth is his, like as he says, the whole earth is mine. All earth is his. Yes, absolutely. He created it. But Satan has you surpassed, you, sorry, surpassed, usurped. Better get that around the wrong way. That can be whole lot of different things has usurped man's dominion over it so what was the what was the whole purpose of israel what was the whole purpose of israel when god's calling abraham out of the land of his fathers what's the whole purpose of israel exactly they're meant to be this this nation amongst the people the world all the nations of the world that point people towards god that blesses all the nations that tells the world about God. How did they do it that? Really badly. They did miserable at it. They failed it miserably. And in the end, like they might have had like, you know, miserable, 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 maybe sort of King David Solomon era, maybe bloop, tiny little blip, miserable, miserable, miserable. Like such a really bad job at it all the time. And they 
they started looking like any other nation around them. Completely, like nothing could set them apart. Nothing set them apart. They weren't looking holy in any way, were they? Were they set apart in any way? No, they would look just like every other nation around them. So that's the problem. The treasure here, let's come back to our parable. The treasure wasn't invested to bring glory to God and point you know, other nations around to God. It wasn't invested wisely. It was just, it's just hidden in the field. It was just invisible, hidden in the dirt with all the every other nations. But Jesus came, but Jesus came and he died to buy everything back to himself. And in amidst that like full completeness, that, you know, that utter sufficiency of Jesus' death, he, in a special like, way, he bought that nation back to himself, back for himself. Okay? And there is a really interesting um, little hint to this in John, actually. In John chapter 11. And it's where Caiaphas, where all these guys, they're getting around to plot to kill Jesus. And this is in a council where they're having their little group huddle, like how do we weed out, how do we kill this Jesus character? And it's really interesting because Caiaphas, the high priest, he ends up prophesying that Jesus' death will save the nation. It's super strange. So let's read um, verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that, here it is, it is better for you that one man should die for the people that the whole nation should perish. And this is John's sort of commentary on what he's saying. John's explaining, he's pulling it apart, he's explaining the truth behind it. He's saying, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to, and this is where we're going to get into the pearl next week, but also that he would gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So as Caiaphas is saying this, in his head, he's thinking, all right, so there's this Jesus guy that the people are starting to really love. They think he's the Messiah. What happens if they crown him king? Ah, that's not going to be good for us. Rome's going to come down and squash us like bugs. So we've got to do something about this Jesus guy before Rome comes and kills us. That's what's going through in, in his head. But in reality, in this sort of like other dimensional thing, he's prophesying Jesus is saving the nation of Israel. It's very cool. Maybe that was just me being really nerdy or getting too wordy. Maybe I should just try to say that in six words. I'm sorry. Yeah, okay. But we know, but like, so we'll probably stop looking at the Bible there and just understand our secular history from then on. So what's happened since Jesus died and rose? How have the, how have the Jewish nation gone? Like, what's happened to the Jews over history? Well, they had their, you know, their, their temple destroyed. Jerusalem was sacked. They've gone, through, yeah, they've gone through scatterings. They've been kicked out of countries. They've been massacred. You know, there's been pogroms against them. There's been a whole manner of persecution come to the Jewish people, like culminating in like the Holocaust of World War II. They're very much still a nation hidden. Hidden in the world. They've been like persecuted into insignificance really. Now but I think it's important to end though on their time will come. 
because when we were going through Revelation, I think you did it, bro, that sermon about 144,000 of them. You can see their time coming where they then will show the world, point the world towards Jesus because you see that 144,000 especially marked Israelis. And then all of a sudden, John sees this massive crowd, massive crowd of people and they're speaking like, are they all speaking Hebrew? No, they're speaking all different languages. Are they all Jewish? No, they're from all different countries. All right, there's this massive teeming mass of people. And this is that, that, that final state, really, of this treasure in the world pointing, like actually being invested and giving glory back to God, bringing other people in, pointing the nations towards God. That's what I think this is anyway. So, that's where, we, and we'll get to that next week. There's so much of this next week stuff, hey? Next week, next week, next week, with the pearl, this incredible pearl, okay? This one giant multi-ethnic family of God. Because it's really stuck out to me, actually, in this last little while of how different cultures are around and how wrong it is for us just to think inwardly around in our little white, middle-class, comfortable Toowoomba. Okay, so I want us to really think outside of that, but that's next week anyway. So all the Israel stuff's great, okay? And we, we can see it here, and, but how does... How does it relate to the seconds at the fruit market? And seconds at the fruit market, I mean, you filthy Gentile Christians. <laughs> How does it relate to us? Like when we see something like this, we, we immediately want to relate something to us, to ourselves. But it kind of doesn't. Not today. Not this week. Except from the fact that this is the same God. God's character is always the same. If God went to the utmost of lengths all in to buy this world that had a special people of his in it, he'll do the same for his people. He'll always do the same for his people. So just take comfort in that this week. If you're in Christ, if you're in Jesus, and he loves you, bought the whole world for you. So we'll learn a little bit of our place next week um, because what better place to store a priceless pearl than in a treasure chest and, um, and as we can see God's character he just has immense love for his people do anything, buy anything stop at nothing to have them, that's that you know, that almost you know, just no thought of himself love for his people and um, because while there's this treasure is buried in a field hidden away at this point in time yet to be revealed elsewhere there is a some little small something hidden away growing it's hidden away in a dark place it started small it's this little pearl and it's growing but that's next week